Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. My name is Crawford Gribben, I'm your host, and today I'm really pleased to introduce our guest, Jonathan Lukadu. Jonathan is Assistant Professor at Presbyterian University and Theological Seminary in South Korea, and he is the author of this important new commentary on the Epistle of Barnabas, published in the Apostolic Fathers Commentary Series from Cascade Books. Jonathan, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for your time and thanks for coming to talk about your work. Oh, well, thank you very much, Crawford, for inviting me. It's great to be here. Fantastic. Um, before we begin, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So uh, I've been interested in matters related to early Christianity for uh, a while now. Um, I had the chance to do an undergraduate that dealt with some Greek texts and, and some New Testament texts. And then in my master's program, I was introduced to more texts from the second century and so one of my interests is uh, just thinking about how Christian history developed in sort of the two centuries or so after Jesus. Uh, with that, my, my PhD kind of focused on Ignatius of Antioch, who is another second century writer um, and dealt with some themes related to temple and, and high priestly metaphors that he uses in his letters. I had the chance to do that uh, at the University of Otago in New Zealand, and it really um, focused very much on the on the second century, but also dealt with some texts like Paul and the Epistle to the Hebrews that come out of the first century and, and were quite enjoyable to deal with as well. And uh, since then, yeah, I've been trying to work around in, in various uh Books, various texts that come out of the, the first and second centuries. So it's been, uh, it's always enjoyable to me to try and pick up some of these texts and, and to have the chance to write this commentary very much fit within that larger research aim, at least for myself. That's great, Jonathan. And as you just indicated there, you've done quite a lot of publication in this field already. Um, 2018, The High Priest in the Temple book, and then 2021, uh, Study of the Shepherd of Hermas. So can you tell us how you move from these texts towards thinking about the Epistle of Barnabas? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, I suppose at one level, um, uh, we we could answer this in a a quite pragmatic way, but I'll I'll try to give a a better answer as well. Um, Very pragmatically, I I, I was asked, Paul Hartog uh, served as an examiner on my PhD thesis, the, the book on Ignatius, that became the book on Ignatius. And um, 
uh, he and, and Sean Wilhite, uh, the series editors, reached out and, and asked if I'd be willing to contribute this volume on the Epistle of Barnabas. So there's one, I suppose, uh, slightly mundane reason uh, for writing this. Um, but uh, but I, I do see it very much as an outgrowth of, of these other research projects that um, uh, the books that I've written so far, they've been part of this, uh, focused on this corpus that is known as the Apostolic Fathers, uh, which is a, a slightly artificial corpus, but it, it does tend to include a lot of text from the second century. And uh, the Epistle of Barnabas deals with many of the same themes that occur in, in other second century texts. Um, since I mentioned Ignatius a, a moment ago, maybe we could think of issues like uh, Judaism and Christianity and what the relationship should be between those. Those are, are common themes between the two uh, texts or groups of texts. Uh, there are other metaphors and, and bits of language that are quite similar between the texts. And so um, it's it's another Greek early Christian text that, that feels uh, hopefully somewhat familiar, at least for those who, who have read around in the second century. And, and I've tried through the commentary to draw out a few instances where I, I think there might be some points of over overlap and um, useful comparison, I suppose. Very good, Jonathan. Thank you. Now, you, you tell us there that the, the this corpus, the Apostolic Fathers corpus, is slightly artificial. And that, that's a really interesting remark to make, isn't it? Because one of the things you do in the introduction to this book is think about intertextual relationships. Um, for example, with the Didache that you've you've got in Barnabas, and also in this other early apostolic, post-apostolic writing, I should say, the idea of the two ways, don't you? And there's other other moments of contact, other points of contact between them too. Do when we think about the, the corpus as being slightly artificial, are we able to know the extent to which writers within it would have recognized other writers as also being within it, if that makes sense. In other words, is, is, it, is it an historic or is it an anachronistic projection? That's a really great question. Yeah. Um, to what degree would, would the writers recognize themselves and other writers? Um, yeah, so to some degree, um, I suppose the, the modern version of the Apostolic Fathers uh, pro probably comes out in a form similar to its current form in, in the 17th century and kind of the aftermath of, of the Protestant Reformation. Um, that, that at least seems to be where a few recent articles have, have kind of pointed to finding that uh, collection of texts. There are earlier collections uh, in manuscripts that do seem to notice, uh, for example, First and Second Clement are, are two other texts that occur within the Apostolic Fathers, and they occur together in manuscripts uh, pretty regularly, I believe, um, though I'm not an expert in, in that particular uh, text. Um, uh, we, we also see, um, for example, the Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barnabas occur together uh, at the end of, of Codex Sinaiticus, which is a, a fourth century manuscript. And so uh, there are other readers, later readers, who have put these texts together or seen things in these texts that could be put together. What the authors might have seen in themselves, uh, amongst themselves, is kind of interesting to think about. I'm not sure that I have a great uh, 
answer for, for what that might have been. I, I suppose to some degree it, it might remain unknown simply because they don't tell us. However, there is, uh, while there's a lot of diversity among the individual apostolic fathers' texts, there are points of similarity through a number of the texts. And so if one could imagine, and it, it is imaginary, but if one could imagine a kind of dinner party with all of these people getting together, uh, I, I do think they'd have a number of things to talk about and um, moments of agreement alongside probably plenty of heated dispute as well. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a great dinner party. Um, when we when we, when we think about Barnabas then, and as you prepared to write the commentary on this important text, how did you find the state of the field? Yeah, well, uh, it's in many ways a very exciting time to be researching on the epistle of Barnabas. Uh, there's been a lot of work done in the last 30 years that... Um, has, I think, uh, altered how some of the 20th century uh, scholarship understood the Epistle of Barnabas. And so uh, if we think about the 20th century, um, much of the scholarship on the Epistle of Barnabas was very closely textual and is very useful, remains very useful for that reason. Uh, But it was focused on questions of uh, tradition, uh, what traditions might the author of the Epistle of Barnabas have used. Uh, there seems, if, if I can paint an entire century really broadly um, with, with one brush, uh, there, for, for a lot of scholars out of the 20th century, there's um, a kind of quiet or sometimes not so quiet assumption that the author was not terribly creative, but was simply combining the traditions uh, that happened to be in front of the author. And I, I think that there's been some scholarship in the 20th century and uh, the end of the 20th century and moving into the 21st that um, points to certain elements of creativity among the author. While, while the author probably was using traditions and very much does speak in a traditional mode, the way in which that has been combined uh, does seem to be very much Barnabas' own way of combining things, and, and that recognition is, uh, I think, important to at least how, how I view the letter. Um, I, I see it very much as a unified text, and as something that is uh, largely coherent, although some of the transitions are, are rather rough. Um, but, uh, but largely, I think the, the project undertaken in the letter is coherent, and if that's the case, then uh, it's useful to read the, the Epistle of Barnabas as a single text from beginning to end. Um, and I suppose I would add to that um, that I, I see it as a letter, um, very much a text that, that was actually written from an author to an audience to address some kind of problem. As with many ancient letters, it sometimes is a little hard to figure out precisely why the letter was written or all of the reasons that may have animated the author. But I think there are some that we can find as we're reading through the text. And there's enough signs that, of uh, coherence that, that we can see the author very much thinking about a single topic as, as the author progresses through the letter. 
So, Jonathan, you tell us that the, the author really invites us to read the text from beginning to end. But, of course, one of the things you point out in the commentary is that there are two endings, aren't there? There's there's a, there's the, the standard one, the Greek text, but the Latin has a slight variation. Could, could you talk us through the, the textual history of Barnabas and perhaps explain how we end up with this bifurcated conclusion? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, the textual history of the Epistle of Barnabas is... Uh, like a number of other texts in the Apostolic Fathers, it's a really interesting textual history. It's um, messy at many points. And yeah, as you mentioned, perhaps the best example of that is the endings in the Greek tradition, uh, the Greek manuscript traditions and and, uh, the Latin manuscript tradition. Um, With the Latin text, uh, if somebody was to look up the Epistle of Barnabas in, in a edition of the Apostolic Fathers. The Latin text basically runs from the beginning of the letter until the end of chapter 17. Um, But the Greek editions that tend to form the basis, I think rightly, of the text that we use today in the Apostolic Fathers runs from uh, the beginning at 1-1 through chapter 21. So the Latin text is uh, a little bit shorter um, it doesn't contain the material in chapters 18 to 21, which is um, the, the two ways tradition that, that we might get to a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, so the, the Latin translation, at least in the manuscript that we have it, is um, occasionally a little bit wordy at points um, within the letter, but as a whole, the translation is, is shorter. Um, which uh, raises raises questions um, for for some people that maybe maybe chapters one through seventeen were its own text, its own letter that circulated on its own, and perhaps at some later point, chapters eighteen to twenty one were added to that letter uh, later in, in a different manuscript tradition. And that's certainly possible. I can't, I suppose, rule it out uh, definitively. Um, for myself, I think that chapters 18 to 21 can be read pretty well alongside uh, chapters 1 to 17. So there's a number of thematic similarities, this language of paths um, that uh, animates the, the two ways tradition. That language is also found uh, earlier in the letter in chapters 1 through 17. The language of righteousness and light are found in, in both sides of the letter, um, uh, 1 through 17 and also 18 to 21. Uh, so there's there's thematic similarities. And with that in mind, I, I suppose I take chapter 17 to be a kind of transition, um, although some would prefer to take it as a, a full ending, I take it as a kind of tradition. And so... At the end of chapter 17, the author of the epistle says, um, so much for these things, uh, everything that came before uh, in chapters 1 to 17, uh, so much for these things. And then um, in chapter 18, the transition point is um, now let us transition or now let us move on to uh, another knowledge and another teaching. And so there's a kind of transition, and I, I still take the letter to be unified, uh, despite the difference in the textual history. Fascinating. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it's, it, is, it has been quite intriguing to, to read and, and to engage with that textual tradition. 
And I, I mean, I suppose it, it's not uncommon in second, third, even third century texts for that textual variation to be present. So I, I, as we think about textual variation, you've talked a lot, Jonathan, about the author. But isn't the author really obvious from the title? Isn't, aren't we just talking about Barnabas? Well, uh, we could, and I uh, perhaps uh, will switch at some point to to using the word Barnabas in order to describe the author. Um, yeah, we, we certainly could. Um, uh, I suppose I would want to make a distinction between uh, Barnabas, the, the person who we might know from Paul's letters, as a historical figure living in the first century, and whoever this author is uh, writing, I think, sometime early in the second century. Um and, and so I, I don't exactly know who this author is. Um, and I suppose one of the intriguing elements about reading this text is that uh, the author does not name themselves. So uh, we could imagine a different letter in which somebody not named Barnabas in the second century uh, wrote and simply called themselves Barnabas. And that might uh, give their letter more authority. Uh, it would be what we might refer to as a, a pseudepigraphic text or a falsely uh, false false authorship. Um, that, that's perhaps a slightly judgmental distinction to make, but um, uh, yes, uh, the wrong name might be in in the sender's category. And we could imagine somebody writing a text like that uh, with the epistle of Barnabas. The name Barnabas never actually shows up in the letter, and so. Uh, it is a little puzzling to figure out how it got its name. Um, and I, I don't come to a great answer in, in the commentary because I, I don't yet have one, though I'm very interested in trying to think about uh, the implications that reading this text as pseudepigraphic, that is, someone, the, the author, wanted people to think that they were Barnabas or anonymous. And the text might be anonymous and then attributed to Barnabas later on. Yeah. And I, I suppose what makes that discussion so fascinating is that the New Testament evidence situates Barnabas in proximity with Paul. And yet one of the things you draw in the introduction to this commentary is that this Barnabas or this author, who might be anonymous, as you remind us, is saying things that are quite distinct sometimes from the Paul tradition. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, there are there are things that are quite distinct from the, the Pauline tradition, uh, perhaps notably um, for the Epistle of Barnabas, there there is a complete rejection of Israel ever having membership in the covenant. And that, that is quite different from what we might find in Paul's letters in, in say, Romans or Galatians. Um, so that brings its whole uh, brings a whole other set of, of ethical um, and, and interpretive issues into the into the discussion. Uh, but just just to think a little bit more about this this authorship issue, um, yeah, you're you're quite right, uh, Crawford, to to point out, yeah, that Barnabas does say things that that are different from the the Pauline tradition. Um, but I one of the other things that I, I mentioned just alongside that uh, section on authorship is that, um, yeah, that Barnabas, uh, I think that name was chosen intentionally. Um, and, and I think, for example, uh, 
what we find in, in the New Testament and Paul's letters and and in the book of Acts is that Barnabas is a, a Jewish and um, actually a, a Levite in the book of Acts. Um, and then Barnabas does have these associations with Paul. And I think the combination of Barnabas being both Jewish and associated with Paul comes into play in this letter, even though uh, on reading the two texts together, Paul's letters and, and the Epistle of Barnabas, they do sound different. Um, we see the Epistle of Barnabas uh, struggling with the Old Testament, working to interpret the Old Testament, uh, which um, or, or the Hebrew Bible, uh, which is a, a very uh, Jewish thing to do. So Barnabas' Jewish origins might come into play there. And we also see the Epistle of Barnabas focusing on, on a very um, uh, non Israelite uh, understanding of, of covenant. And as harsh as I find that as a 21st century reader um, on, on occasion, uh, I, I think that um, actually Barnabas's associations with Paul come into play there because Paul, uh, for, for better or worse, in some second and third century circles was, was interpreted very much as um, anti-Jewish. Uh, and that there were Jewish Christian texts that pushed back against Paul. Um, and so I think choosing the name of Barnabas uh, as either the author um, or, or perhaps some other uh, anonymous figure, and, and Barnabas was attributed later, but I, I think choosing Barnabas's name um, fits the general tenor of the letter if one allows a particular interpretation of Paul. Um. So we need to think about interpreting Paul in relation to the letter, of course. One of the other things you emphasized in the introduction is that the dating of the letter can help us understand the significance of these anti-Jewish elements. Can you just talk us through that? That was a fascinating discussion. Yeah, well, um, yeah, so I I think with the date, there are a few complications, uh, as as you know, and as, as you're alluding to, uh, uh, regarding the dates. Um, but there there are two, uh, I guess, primary texts within Barnabas that help us to date it, uh, kind of speci- attempt to date it, kind of specifically. Uh, the broader range would have to be that the text was written somewhere between seventy. Uh, uh, CE, which is when the first temple was destroyed, and the Epistle of Barnabas knows about the destruction of the first temple. And it has to be written before roughly 200 CE, because uh, it's the first quotation of the letter starts showing up right around 200, just before or just after. And then within that time frame, um, people have appealed to uh, this strange kind of uh, apocalyptic saying in in, uh, in the Epistle of Barnabas. It refers to ten kings. And so people have tried to count the Roman emperors in different ways to come up with ten or, or eleven kings, depending on how one uh, understands the passage to be working. If you count that way, then, then it seems like... Um, perhaps Vespasian in... Uh, in the aftermath of the first Jewish war, or perhaps uh, Nerva at the very end of the first century might be the emperors 
you were being alluded to, and, and thus maybe the time period where the Epistle of Barnabas was written. Uh, there's another text um, further on talking about perhaps rebuilding a temple. And if, if we're talking about rebuilding a temple, we might think of uh, kind of rumors, hopes among uh, uh, certain somewhat revolutionary Jewish figures, maybe just uh, prior to the Bar Kokhba revolt in 130, 132. Uh, we might think about um, the fact that the Romans actually built uh, another temple on top of the Jerusalem temple and dedicated it to Jupiter. And that was just, well, either just before or just after, probably just after the Bar Kokhba revolt. Uh, and so my way of solving this uh, issue, because um, I, I see kind of a tension between those two answers to the dating question. Uh, but my, my way of resolving that is to think that maybe the Epistle of Barnabas was written just prior to the Bar Kokhba revolt in, say, 130, 132, and that it's reused this tradition to create this tradition re related to the Ten Kings to create a, a sense of tension, um, a sense of crisis among readers. And if that's the case, then we could imagine uh, a Christian author perhaps struggling um, not just with the Bar Kokhba revolt, but that might be the impetus, but struggling with these issues of what does it mean to be uh, a follower of Jesus on the one hand, and uh, what does it mean to be Jewish on the other? And so I think that the Epistle of Barnabas, with all of its interpretations of scripture and discussion of covenant, I think what it's trying to set out is uh, a particular second century way of understanding what it means to be a, a Christian and to differentiate that from um, a sort of Jewish perspective. And, and if we are in the lead up to the Bar Kokhba revolt, uh, as, we're, as we're reading this, perhaps also to place themselves in a more favorable light, um, knowing that uh, perhaps a war is coming or is ongoing uh, with uh, yeah with, with Rome between uh, Jews and and the Romans and 130 from 132 to 135 is the Bar Kokhba mm. revolt there is a real sense of crisis in Barnabas isn't there there there's eschatological calculations eschatological figures um a sense of the imminence of the the second coming all of this combines together to create a real atmosphere in the text, doesn't it? It does. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's the, the discussion of uh, the, the kings or the emperors um, that, uh, yeah, it, it feels very much as if things are kind of coming to an end uh, at that passage. And there's a repetition, actually, just there of uh, words related to... Um, uh, telos, um, we might get our English word telic from, from that word, the sense that there's a purpose or an end, um, and, and that very much comes through in that passage. Uh, so, so there is this sense of crisis in the letter, and, and I think Barnabas functions, uh, the epistle of Barnabas functions in some ways as a warning, um, while there is this strong distinction created between uh to use Barnabas's term, between Israel and and Barnabas's own community, uh, I think there's also an implicit warning there 
to members of Barnabas's community that uh, that they should not act in the same way that, that Barnabas finds so problematic in Israel. And so it's, it's not just uh, a descriptive text um, that is trying to uh, analyze some theological problem, but, but it also functions as a warning um, to members of, of Barnabas's own community. And the eschatology um, contributes to that sense of, of warning and, and urgency that readers should listen and they should, should act in the way that Barnabas recommends. Mm. Jonathan, it's, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today about the Epistle of Barnabas, a commentary published by Cascade Books in the Apostolic Fathers Commentary Series. What can we look forward to reading from you next? Ooh, um, yeah, well, thank you for, for that. Um, yeah, I suppose um, at the moment I'm, I'm turning my mind back to Ignatius for a little bit. So um, I'm thinking about uh, uh, Ignatius Christology, and so that will... Well, hopefully, um, I'll finish a, a manuscript related to Ignatius Christology. Uh, hopefully, by the end of the year, um, it would it would certainly make uh, life easier on the publication side if I could hit that deadline. So, that that will be my uh, my my primary goal here over the next couple of months. Um, yeah, and then after that, uh, I, I don't have a, a great deal of specific plans. I'll I'll keep up with the Epistle of Barnabas. I I hope I very much have enjoyed writing this commentary and I hope to continue um, uh, yeah, reading around on scholarship in the Epistle of Barnabas and, and we'll see what comes out of that. I'm, I'm not quite sure at this point. Great. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for your time today. We've been talking to Jonathan Lukadu. He's the author of the Epistle of Barnabas, a commentary published, as I just mentioned, by Cascade Books in the Apostolic Fathers commentary series. Um, thanks to you, Jonathan, for your time. Thanks to everyone else for tuning in today. And I will see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.